I have a mental list of people throughout history that I would love to have dinner with. If I could gather all these people from history and sit down at this big dinner table and just enjoy what happens, I have my list in my head. Obviously, Rod Serling is on that list, creator of The Twilight Zone. I celebrated the anniversary of his death yesterday. You probably didn't do that, but I did. My grandfather, my mom's dad, died before I was born, so he is definitely on that list. I would like to meet him one day. Pablo Picasso is on my list. John Lennon, Flannery O'Connor. That guy named Darkon in Ezra 2. We'll encounter him in Nehemiah 7 as well. I'd like to see what he's like. This guy Darkon, what's he like? But there's one guy in particular that if given a chance, I definitely want to have dinner with this guy. He was a pastor, but he's a little bit different pastor. He looked a little bit differently. He dressed a little bit differently. He was a tall, lanky man, often given to weakness and frailty and sickness. He wore knickers and a powdered wig. His name, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is known mostly for his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he had many other sermons, one of which serves as the title to my sermon today. In his sermon, Christian Charity, or the Duty of Charity to the Poor, explained and enforced, Edwards said this, and the, basis, the text that he was using in his sermon was Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. Based on that passage, this is what Jonathan Edwards said. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in more peremptory manner than the command of giving to the poor? Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than here in Deuteronomy 15 and in a more peremptory manner than the command of giving to the poor? Even Edward's sermon title is a great description of what Nehemiah will do in Nehemiah chapter 5. In this chapter, Nehemiah will explain and enforce the duty of charity to the poor. See, Jonathan Edwards is just following Nehemiah when he points out in his sermon that when we begin to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, the result will be a life poured out in deeds of justice and compassion to the poor. When our gospel is big, Jonathan Edwards is saying, then the result will be that we pour out our lives in deeds of compassion and love and justice for the poor. And that's what Nehemiah does in this chapter. And ultimately, it is what Jesus Christ did for us. Paul describes the gospel like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We were poor spiritually, and Jesus came to make us rich. Now, when I say that Jesus came to make us rich, I do not mean it in the way that those TV preachers, those health, wealth, prosperity gospels, uh, gospel preachers on TV mean. I think they're heretics. They don't know the gospel. Jesus did not come to make us rich, to give us big homes and nice cars and bank accounts and promise us total healing from sickness. That 
is a heresy from the pit of hell. Jesus came to make us rich in the sense that we were poor, broken, rebellious sinners who deserved his wrath. And he came to make us rich by giving us his righteousness. A righteousness that none of us could produce on our own. It's this alien foreign righteousness that God must give to us. That's how we are made rich. And it was all due, as Paul says, to God's grace. Nothing we could do to earn it. And that's why care for the poor is central to the gospel. That's why when the Apostle Paul started preaching and the Jerusalem church leader said, you go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jewish people, the leaders in Jerusalem met with Paul and this is what Paul says about their meeting in Galatians 2.10. He says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Care for the poor, the down and out, is central to the gospel. And that's why our big idea today is this. Pour your life out for the poor. Pour your life out for the poor. Let your understanding of the gospel cause you to pour your life out in deeds of love and compassion and justice for the poor. That's what Nehemiah will explain and enforce in this chapter. So look at Nehemiah chapter 5 at verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So as Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, there was a famine Times were hard naturally. Times were hard and naturally, when times are hard and the economy goes down, people start to voice their opinions. We do this, don't we? When the economy goes down and the price of everything goes up, what do we start doing? We open our mouths, don't we? Same thing happened here in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. There was a great outcry, the text says, among the people because there were injustices happening in Jerusalem, the city of God. People were mistreating the poor. And then things get amped up because the wives join in. Things always get amped up when the wives join in. Why? Because hell hath no fury like a woman whose bank account gets scorned. But realize though that the people here and the wives are justified in their anger. Justice is being perverted in Jerusalem, the city of God. Fellow Israelites are oppressing the poor among the city of God. Fellow Israelites are oppressing fellow Israelites. And so we have three oppressed groups represented here. Let's look at their identity and at their complaint. Group number one is found in verse two, and this is what they say. With our sons and our daughters, we are many. 
So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. This group had no land. They were dependent on others to trade or to buy food or to glean from the fields as God had described in his law. He told landowners, leave the corners of your fields for poor people who have no land, who have no resources so that they can come through and pick the produce of your land so they can stay alive. So that's what this group is having to do. And they cry out and they say, we have lots of kids and therefore we need lots of groceries. Now, this isn't just the Brady Bunch here, okay? With six kids, this is the Duggar family from that show 19 Kids and Counting. These Israelites have lots of kids and kids eat a lot especially if they're a teenager. Can I get an amen? Listen, you may think your eight-year-old eats a lot, but you haven't seen anything yet. Right, parents of teenagers? Wait until that eight-year-old hits double digits. He'll start eating double-doubles from in and out and then start asking for some of your food. So if you have an eight-year-old boy, you might want to start a grocery savings account for him right now. Trust me, you'll thank me one day. Group number one is struggling to feed their families. They're just trying to stay alive. Forget having a cell phone. They just want some cereal for breakfast in the morning. Group number two is found in verse three. This is what they say. We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. These are the refinancers. They're constantly refinancing. But don't throw these people under the bus because they keep refinancing. They have mortgaged away everything because they are hungry, because there is a famine, because they are being oppressed. The financial decisions that these people have made are precisely because they are being oppressed. Justice is being perverted in Jerusalem. So group number two is struggling because there is a famine and they are being oppressed by those who have plenty. They are taking out mortgages just to be able to eat mac and cheese. They're refinancing just to be able to buy some ramen noodles. And then group number three is found in verses four and five where they say this. We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Well, we know from history that Persian taxes were high in Nehemiah's day and scholars estimate that by the end of the 5th century, taxes rose from 20% to 40 maybe even 50%. You see, the Persians were lenient when it came to religious freedom, when it came to religious liberty. They let you worship whomever you wanted to. If you wanted to worship Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, the Persians said, go for it. If you wanted to worship Mother Earth or Oprah, they didn't care. Worship whoever you want to worship. But the Persians would tax the socks off of you. The Persian government would tax you for everything. They would tax the socks right off of you. They would tax you for any and everything. They would just keep on taxing you and taxing you and taxing you. Sound like any government you know? Asking for a friend. 
So these Israelites have gone to the bank repeatedly to borrow money to pay their taxes, and now they have to sublet their children. Their children have been put up as collateral. The children are now forced to go to work in factories to make clothing for giant retail chains. Some of their girls have been sold into slavery. They have no money to purchase them back. These Israelites have taken the equity out of their houses just to be able to pay Uncle Sam's, Persian Sam's taxes and to feed their families. And now their kids are working full-time jobs and they're just a day away from bankruptcy and being homeless. All three groups are being oppressed, not by pagans, not by unbelievers, not by the world, but by wealthier Israelites who aren't phased by the famine. In fact, the rich are getting richer because of the famine. The famine is killing one section of society while the other section is profiting and getting rich off of the financial decline of the others. Well, how does Nehemiah respond to all of this oppression of the poor? He's ticked. Nehemiah is angry because he knows that this kind of oppression of the poor is antithetical to the gospel. Look at verses six and seven. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Nehemiah is angry. He sees red. He's all worked up over the oppression of the poor. He's been busy since he returned to Jerusalem, working hard, trying to rebuild the city walls so that the people of God can be the city of God, so that they can shine forth the light of God's glory to the nations, so that the name and the fame of Yahweh would go to the nations. Nehemiah knows this is why we exist, for God's glory. But instead of being like the city of God, being the city of God, they are acting like the world and oppressing the poor, oppressing fellow Israelites. So picture Nehemiah, he's busy rebuilding the city wall and he gets a text message about the oppression of the poor and he loses it. He's angry. After he hears the complaints of the people, he says this in verse seven, I took counsel with myself, which literally in Hebrew says, I went to Starbucks and got a Frappuccino and thought about this all day. That's what it literally says in Hebrew. And after Nehemiah got all hopped up on espresso and caffeine, he went and confronted the officials and nobles. Look at verse seven. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So Nehemiah is saying, we have come back and bought those people who were sold into slavery to the nations and you turn around and sell them back to the nations for a profit and then we have to come along and buy them back. And so Nehemiah calls the leaders out. The elephant in the room is that they have been abusing and taking advantage of the poor and Nehemiah shows up to talk about what none of the leaders wanted to talk about. Nehemiah's rebuke is short and sweet. You're exacting interest from your brothers. You've totally gone Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on your own family. We know from other parts of scripture that some of the Jews did not go into exile in Babylon, 
but had been sold to the surrounding nations. Most of the nation was carted off into exile into Babylon, but some of the Jews were sold as slaves to the surrounding nations. And when these exiles returned from Babylon under Ezra's leadership, they purchased their brothers from slavery. But then some of the money-hungry Israelites turned around and sold their fellow Israelites back to the nations, and they carried the loan. They bought them out of slavery, sold them back to the pagan nations, all the while while Nehemiah and others are trying to buy them back out of slavery. These Israelite loan sharks were ready to pounce on the poor who could not pay their debts. This led to some Israelites going into debt slavery to pay off the family debts. They couldn't just go into foreclosure. You just couldn't declare bankruptcy back then. They had to work until the debt was paid off. And the loan sharks leading the oppression of the poor were Israelites. Understand just how antithetical this is to the gospel. These people were all once in slavery to Babylon or the surrounding nations around Jerusalem. They had been redeemed and restored to the land by the Lord, and now some were being put right back into slavery. This goes against the gospel. The gospel is all about freedom, and these Israelite loan sharks lost sight of that. It just shows us that there's something about our human nature that's been wrecked by sin. There's just something about our human nature that's been so wrecked by sin that we easily gravitate to mistreating other people. We see it with our kids. And if we're honest, we see it in our own lives. What happened in Genesis chapter 3 messed all of us up. That's the situation we'd face in Nehemiah 5. There's a financial crisis. There's a famine. There's a drought. People are starving to death. They're hungry. They were in a recession. Taxes were high. Gasoline was high. Groceries were high. And people who claimed to be among the city of God were exploiting the poor among the city of God. Listen, if you're involved in some scenario or scheme where you profit off the poor, you might want to reconsider that. I heard of a guy once who helps poor people buy a home because their credit is so terrible and they want desperately to have a home. I heard that he, that he came along and he helps these people out who could not get a loan and then he carries the loan for them. And I was impressed and I thought, wow, this guy understands the gospel. This guy has a big gospel. And then someone told me that he charges them around 20 to 25% interest. Listen, if you're involved in some scenario or scheme where you profit off the poor, you might want to reconsider that. Because Proverbs chapter 23 verses 10 through 11 says this, Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. God so cares for the down and out and the helpless, that he will defend their cause. He is their redeemer. He will take up their cause. Trust me, you don't want the Lord taking you to court and prosecuting you for the oppression of the poor. 
We're not called to profit off the poor or to gain something from the poor. The gospel call is this. Pour your life out for the poor. These Israelite loan sharks lost sight of the gospel. They lost sight of the fact that Yahweh redeemed them from Babylonian captivity. They lost sight of the fact that the Lord had rescued them from slavery, but Nehemiah didn't lose sight of the gospel, and so he confronted them and he exposed their gospel amnesia. Look at verses eight through 11. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this, exact, abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Well, you could hear a pin drop that day. Nehemiah says, you've been bad. What you're doing is not good. You should have feared the Lord and kept the nations from taunting us. We've been helping these people out with food and loaning them money, but you charge them interest. Quit your balloon interest rates. Return everything to them, their homes, their land, even the interest that you took, and do it now. Start cutting checks. Now maybe you're thinking, well, who in the world does Nehemiah think he is? These people are just trying to do business, trying to make a buck, trying to provide for their families. Well, let me tell you who Nehemiah is. He is a man who loves God's word. He knows the scriptures. He knows the law. Nehemiah's Bible has Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus all highlighted. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in Nehemiah's Bible, it's all highlighted. He's written all over the margin. Verses are underlined. The pages in Nehemiah's Bible do not stick together in the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. You know how you get that little nice little gold plating edge on your Bible and you get a new Bible and it's like... You know, and the, you know, sometimes we have a Bible for five years and we go to look up a passage like in Leviticus and the pages are all stuck together and it's like, not with Nehemiah. His Bible's fallen apart, held together by duct tape in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus. Nehemiah knew these passages out of the law. Exodus 22, verses 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7 and 8 which is the text that Jonathan Edwards used in his sermon, that he based his sermon on. Nehemiah knew that passage. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Nehemiah knew Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35 to 38. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him 
or prophet, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. That last verse there is the gospel. It's redemption. We fear the Lord because he saved us. That's where Nehemiah gets this idea of fearing the Lord right out of the book of Leviticus. I mean, who knew the book of Leviticus can change your life? Now listen, I know there are books in the Bible that are hard to understand. But don't let that keep you from reading them. And surely you understood those three verses that I read, didn't you? You didn't need to know anything about the ancient Near Eastern culture of lending and giving. You can read that and say, we're not to profit off the poor because God has saved us. Don't let hard passages in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, keep you from reading them. God's heart goes on display in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. We can't afford to ignore these books. Read them and see the heart of God for the poor and afflicted. Read them and you you will hear the heartbeat of Jesus. Don't you want to know Jesus' heart? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to know what his heart beats? His heart beats for the poor, the oppressed, the down and out. Do you want to see the heart of God in Scripture? Read Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. In these books, God wears his heart on his sleeve. Or read the Old Testament prophets over and over again. You hear God's heart and care for the quartet of the vulnerable as the prophet Zechariah declares in Zechariah chapter 7, 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Read what happened to God's people after these verses in Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Read what happened to them, and you'll see how much God cares about justice. God cares for the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or might we add illegal alien, illegal immigrant, and the poor. God cares for the widow, the fatherless, the illegal immigrant, and the poor. But in Nehemiah's day, Israel lost sight of this. In his book, Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just, Tim Keller says this, Israel was charged to create a culture of social justice for the poor and vulnerable because it was the way the nation could reveal God's glory and character to the world. Israel was charged to create a culture of social justice for the poor and vulnerable because it was the way the nation could reveal God's glory and character to the world. 
Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, Keller says, is a key text where Israel is told that they should keep God's commands so that all the nations of the world will look at the justice and peace of their society based on God's laws and be attracted to God's wisdom and glory. That when you live in your world and you create this society of social justice, looking after the quartet of the vulnerable, God was telling Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when you do that, the nations will come and they will peek over the city walls and say, who is your God that you are this kind of people? And that's why Nehemiah said what he said in verse 8. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah knew that instead of the drawing the nations in to marvel at God's wisdom because of how they were treating the poor, instead of drawing the nations in so that they would peek over the city walls to marvel at God's wisdom because of how the Israelites treated the poor, instead, he said, the nations are going to taunt us. You see, Nehemiah knew and loved the Old Testament scriptures and therefore he knew that the refrain of God's heart was this, pour your life out for the poor. I hope this sermon stirs all of us up to get more involved in helping the poor in our city. You can do that by serving the homeless in our city. You know we have a vast homeless population here on the Central Coast. You can spearhead that by leading another round of homeless bag ministry here at Grace. You know, we put the homeless bags together for the homeless people with bottled water, granola bar, gloves, etc. You could spearhead that or be involved with that when we do another one. You can pour your life out for the poor by helping the Good Samaritan Shelter, the Salvation Army, CareNet, or being involved in our For the City events, or even when you give to our Benevolence Fund that we take every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we feast on God's grace, we respond immediately by giving to the poor. So next week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you can celebrate the peace that you have with God through Jesus Christ, the grace that he has shown you. And then immediately you can respond to that grace by giving to the Benevolence Fund that goes to help members and regular attenders who find themselves in some financial need. Or You could do what Pastor James is asking us to do to purchase backpacks and to fill them with school supplies for the kids at the Navajo Reservation. There's information about that in your bulletin. Let your understanding of the gospel cause you to pour out your life in deeds of love and compassion and justice for the poor. Just do something. Even if it's just just one small thing. Maybe you're going to make a commitment to say, you know what? Every day that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm going to give to the Benevolence Fund. That's how I'm going to give to the poor. That's how I'm going to pour my life out for the poor. Maybe it's, you know what? I'm going to keep homeless bags in my car so I can hand off this little bag to a homeless person as I see them at the grocery store and just bless them with some bottled water and granola bar and other things. Just do one small thing. What if we all just did one small thing? What kind of difference would we make? Well, what happened to the Israelite loan sharks? 
They were silent in verse 8. They had nothing to say. But how do they respond to Nehemiah's rebuke? They break their silence. Look at verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The people repented. They responded to Nehemiah's scripture-saturated rebuke. The law did its work. God's law did its work in exposing their sin. God's law kicked the legs out from under these loan sharks and exposed their greed. And they turned from their sin. And then Nehemiah made them pinky swear that they would do what they promised. And then Nehemiah does something really strange. He shakes the crumbs out of his garment. I mean, obviously he had been eating crackers that day. Well, why, now why does Nehemiah shake his clothes as, as if he had a bunch of crumbs on them? He's acting out this parable before them. He's acting out this parable, telling them, this is what the Lord will do to those of you who do not keep your promise to restore what you took from the poor. Nehemiah was showing them that God would shake them out if they didn't stop their oppression of the poor. Nehemiah was saying, God is gonna come along and shake out your purse and shake out your wallet so that you lose everything. If you don't give back what you took, God's gonna come along and he's gonna shake out your bank account. Well, they responded and said, we will do it. And then everyone said, amen, and they praised the Lord. They had church that day. That's, what, that's how we say it in the South Man, we had church. I had church today. There was solid, God-centered preaching. The preaching of the law, conviction of sin. There was this illustration where Nehemiah shakes his clothes out. There were some amens offered and worship, and the people left and they obeyed. The law was preached and did its work. The law exposed their sin. Then the gospel was declared, and then grace-motivated transformation took place. But Nehemiah wasn't just preaching at these Israelites. He lived what he preached. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah was given a stipend by King Artaxerxes. He got a per diem from the king. <clears throat> from the king. 
Do you know what a per diem is? I learned what a per diem was. I didn't share this with the other services. You get, see, I always share all the good stuff with you guys. Working in the film industry in Hollywood, you got a per diem, like 40 or $50 a day to cover your food. But then you went on the set and they had a thing called craft services, which was this large truck that you could walk in and you could make a sandwich anytime you wanted, a smoothie, eat chips, granola bars, candy bars. That's, I shouldn't be doing that right before lunch, should I, for you people. You could make anything you wanted and then every six hours they had to serve you a meal and it was a good meal. You would get steak and, and mashed potatoes and a great meal. So here I am working on the set. I could eat all I wanted. They had to feed me every six hours and then they gave me a per diem of about $50 cash every day and I was like, bingo, I won the lottery. That's Nehemiah here. He got a per diem every day from King Artaxerxes and he says, I never used it on myself. I gave it away to the poor. He poured his life out for the poor. And he gives the reason why in verse 15. Because of the fear of God. He said, God, I want to please you. And that's why I'm not going to oppress people. And Nehemiah says, I didn't buy any land either. I wasn't interested in settling down and getting a house out in the suburbs surrounding Jerusalem and getting the white picket fence. He says, my only concern was rebuilding the city walls so that Yahweh's fame and his name and his glory would spread to the nations. He says, that was my concern and that's why I gave away all my money to help the poor. Nehemiah knew that God's heartbeat said, pour your life out for the poor. Pour your life out for the poor. And then Nehemiah prays this quick popcorn prayer in verse 19. He does it throughout the book. He's always inserting these little prayers that come out of nowhere. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now it sounds pretentious on the surface, doesn't it? Lord, remember my good works, all that I have done for Israel. It sounds pretentious, but remember, this is Nehemiah's journal that we're reading here. This was his personal prayer to the Lord. He wants God to remember that he sacrificed comfort and security to work for the city of God, to work for God's glory in order to help out the poor. He wants God to remember that he poured his life out for the poor. He wants God to remember that he understood the call of the gospel, which is this, to look up to God, to look up to Christ by faith, and to look out to others in love. He wanted God to remember all that he had done for God's glory. And isn't that what we all want? Don't we want to hear God say, well done, Good and faithful servant. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. When I die, the first thing I want to hear is well done. I want to hear Jesus say that. I don't even care if he says the part about good and faithful servant. I just want to hear Jesus say, well done. That's what Nehemiah is praying. He wants God to remember. And what motivated Nehemiah to start working and working for and protecting the poor and the down and out He says it was the fear of the Lord. He did not want to displease the Lord. He wanted to please the Lord. The fear of the Lord is you you understand God's sovereignty and you revere him and you fear him. But there's this dread of breaking his commandments. The fear of the Lord is I understand that you are almighty God. 
but I also understand that you're my father. And as a child, I want to please my father. And Nehemiah says, this is what's motivating what I'm doing for the poor and what I'm doing for the people of God here in the city, God. Nehemiah had a big gospel. Scotty Smith says, the bigger our gospel, the more gentle our spirit, the more humble our attitude, and the more generous our giving. Nehemiah had a big gospel. The bigger our gospel, Scotty Smith says, the more gentle our spirit, the more humble our attitude, and the more generous our giving. Well, you can't read about the mistreatment of these Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 5 and not think about that Israelite who was mistreated for sinners like us. You can't read about the mistreatment of these Israelites, the the oppression of the poor here in Nehemiah chapter 5 and not think about that Israelite who was mistreated for us. You can't read this chapter and not think about that Israelite, Jesus, how he was innocent and without sin, and yet treated as if he had sinned. You can't read Nehemiah chapter 5 without appropriately reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which we read earlier. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You can't read Nehemiah 5, and not see the grace of God. You can't read Nehemiah 5 and not see Jesus, our Redeemer, who rescued us out of the slavery of sin, who toppled the tyranny of sin in our lives. And you can't read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Christian Charity, or the duty of charity to the poor explained and enforced. You can't read Jonathan Edwards' sermon without seeing the gospel. Because in that sermon, Jonathan Edwards says this, It is especially reasonable, considering our circumstances, under such a dispensation of grace as that of the gospel. Consider how much God hath done for us. How greatly he hath loved us. What he hath given us. When we were so unworthy, and when he could have no addition to his happiness by us. Consider that silver and gold and earthly crowns were in his esteem but mean things to give us. And he hath therefore given us his own son. Christ loved and pitied us when we were poor. And he laid out himself to help. Even did shed his own blood for us without grudging. He did not think much to deny himself and to be at great cost for us, vile wretches. I love that, vile wretches. What if we change the name of this church to Vile Wretches Baptist Church? It might remind us what Jesus has done for us. And to be at great cost for us, vile wretches, in order to make us rich. And to clothe us with kingly robes when we were naked. To feast us at his own table with dainties infinitely costly. That's why I love the Puritans. Because they know how to work a phrase. With dainties infinitely costly. When we were starving. 
to advance us from the dunghill and set us among princes and to make us inherit the throne of his glory and so to give us the enjoyment of the greatest wealth and plenty to all eternity. Agreeably to 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Edwards continues, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Considering all these things, what a poor business will it be that those who hope to share these benefits yet cannot give something for the relief of a poor neighbor without grudging. That it should grieve them to part with a small matter to help a fellow servant in calamity when Christ did not grudge to shed his own blood for them. Considering all these things, these benefits of the gospel, Edward says, what a poor business it will be that those who hope to share in all these benefits of God's grace yet cannot give something for the relief of a poor neighbor without grudging. That it should grieve them to part with such a small matter to help a fellow servant in calamity when Christ did not grudge to shed his own blood for them. May God help us. May we hear his heart today. Pour your life out for the poor. Pour your life out for the poor. We do that because Jesus paid it all. Because Jesus paid it all, let's pour all of our lives out for the poor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a clear picture of the gospel here in Nehemiah chapter 5 and in the sermon of Jonathan Edwards We see what your son has done for us. We were poor, broken, rebellious sinners, and yet he came, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he gave us his righteousness, and therefore we are rich. We eat at your table. We feast on your grace. We pig out on your grace. We scarf down on your grace like a teenager who opens a box of pizza and piles up six and seven slices to consume. We do that with your grace and we love it and we should do that. But God, help us be a people who not only stuff ourselves with your grace, help us to be a people who go and extend that grace to the poor and the down and out in our city. Do that and give us strength May we fear you and not want to displease you in any way for the glory of your kingdom and for the fame of your name we ask in Jesus' name, amen.